Hello and a very warm welcome back to The Gold Podcast. I'm Helena Beer, the editor of Gold, and I'm joined by my co-host and the magazine's assistant editor, Isabel O'Brien. How are you? Hello, yes, good to be back once again. It has been a very exciting week here in Gold. In case you haven't noticed, I think it would be quite hard to miss if you follow us on LinkedIn. But we have released a new issue of Gold, um, very exciting edition, our last of the year. And it was a pleasure to share it, really. Um, a lot of exciting highlights. The cover feature has gone down incredibly well. That was one I mentioned last week about medical affairs. One quote in particular I have to raise is it's been making some waves on LinkedIn, I would say. And it's from Bora Ademli, a longtime friend of gold. And he said, today, pharmaceutical organizations have a Ferrari in their multi-car garage medical affairs and they are driving it to only do the grocery shopping a really great quote that has clearly resonated with quite a few people yes absolutely I realized I was nodding along to everything you said there and nobody can see me um (laughs) but yes um it was really great to share the latest issue a fabulous quote from Bora there um yes it was one of my favorites and it inspired the design of um that feature as well so um yes really pleased to share that one and uh yeah I guess I should thank you for for seeing gold through to its publication as um listeners of last week's episode may have realized I wasn't feeling my best um, but what a difference a week makes I'm feeling on fine form now after um, a bout of scarlet fever um, which Mm. wasn't particularly pleasant but luckily a dose of antibiotics um, has got me back on my feet so uh, yes apologies for somewhat lack of enthusiasm in in last week's uh, recording but yes it was at the start of my illness um, and yes I am back working now and happy to be bringing you this latest episode. Yes, we have been quite a pair this autumn and winter, but (laughs) fingers crossed the new year will be kinder to us. Hopefully. (laughs) So now we're all caught up, I think it's time we get on with the episode. And today is going to be our final interview of 2022. And we're going to be bringing you a conversation that Jade Williams, Gold's editorial executive, had with James Harper, who is the founder and managing director of 28B a software development company specializing in enabling multi-channel reps with effective digital tools. They discuss an array of topics, including the potential convergence of pharma sales and MSLs, as well as recent trends and developments to hit the industry. Indeed, but before that, let's catch up on some news you might have missed. So Isabel, what story would you like to share this week? So a story I would like to highlight today is one that landed in my inbox towards the end of last week, courtesy of the EFPIA, and it was announcing the launch of a new rare diseases initiative that was launched alongside six other partners from the world of pharma and rare diseases, respectively. So this is going to be called the rare disease moonshot, quite a favoured phrase, moonshot in pharma. And the aim is to dismantle current barriers to finding treatments and cures for the rarest and most severe conditions in the world, many of which importantly affect children. So a hugely worthy cause I think a lot of people can get behind. If you're interested, current hurdles to this include regulatory frameworks being poorly designed to accommodate smaller patient populations, which, as you can imagine, is a huge issue when it comes to rare diseases. Speaking on the launch, friend of the podcast, Alexander Natz, who is the Secretary General of UCOPE, which is one of the backers of the scheme, commented, rare diseases represent a pioneering domain for therapeutic innovation. 
With the Moonshot, our goal is to unlock science pathways for as many underserved patients and diseases as possible. Such a positive ambition there. And to put the issue into context, currently 95% of rare diseases have no approved treatment or cure. So it really is fantastic to see these groups pooling their expertise to try and change that for the better. It certainly is. And what about yourself? Did you spot anything amid your illness this week? (laughs) Well, I did actually. Um, So there has been an interesting story on a shift in the inflammatory bowel disease market. So a recent report by Spherix Global Insights, a healthcare data consultancy, has shown that doctors' prescribing habits are changing and they're now favouring newer approved medicines over more traditional solutions. Mm. While tumor necrosis factor or TNF therapies have been the standard of care for over three decades, alternative mechanisms of action are becoming increasingly popular. This is really good news for companies such as BMS, which has recently launched new drugs into this market. But it's also brilliant news for patients as BMS's therapy, for example, can be administered orally rather than via injection. So improving the regimen experience for people living with IBD. Mm, Yeah, that's really good news for patients and certainly an interesting observation for marketers to take note of as well. Indeed it is. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Gold's editorial executive, Jade Williams, recently spoke to James Harper, who is the founder and managing director at 28B. So in one of our recent articles, he discussed whether the role of the pharma sales rep could be at death's door. And in this interview... The pair discussed this notion in a little bit more detail, in addition to James sharing some of his own experiences in the field. That's right. James has quite an extensive history in pharma sales and started out his career in that role straight out of university. So he was able to share some great insights with us. So we'll hand over to Jade to take it away. Hi, James. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Jade. It's a, it's a frosty morning, um, but it's also a beautiful <laughs> morning. Lovely, clear blue skies to go with it. Oh, lovely. Well, lucky for some, outside the office right now, it is cloudy as anything, but hopefully we can get some of those blue skies soon. Um, as mentioned, James recently collaborated with me on one of my articles for Gold25, which has been released, and that was all about whether the role of the pharma rep was at death's door and the changing pace of technology around that. And so it's a very good read. I'd recommend you go ahead and listen to some of the insights shared at that panel. And today I wanted to just dig a little deeper and see what you yourself had to say a bit more about pharma sales, if that's okay, James. Of course, yes. Okay, so the first question I wanted to ask you was, how did this all start? How did you first get into the field of pharma sales? And then leading on from that, what advice would you give to aspiring reps that are hoping to enter the field themselves? Okay, great question. Um, I I fell out of university with a degree in pure and applied ecology, which whilst it allowed me to tell you the sex of a common house spider from about two feet away, didn't really set me up for much of a career. I also had a small amount of student debt and a VW camper van that was little temperamental. So I kind of needed a a job that paid a decent amount of money and came with a car. And so someone recommended the Daily Telegraph on a Thursday because the back of that, it used to be all of the sort of jobs that would use a science degree. And there was this job called a medical representative and I thought I'd give it a go. So I ended up working for a company called Elan Pharma, driving my little 214 bright red Rover. Um, and that's that's how it all started in GP land in Birmingham, Coventry, selling a diltizum and an erythromycin and a nicotine patches. Exciting. What colour was the camper van? 
<laughs> the camper van, yeah, well, that's actually, the, the, uh, I, I miss that camper van. Bright orange uh, with a white white oh. top, Devon conversion. Uh, it went, and we went uh, around Europe in it and all that kind of stuff. But I had to trade it in for a, for a sensible car that goes with being a, a ref. I'm not sure I could have turned up at GP's practice in a VW camper van. But, uh... <laughs> it certainly made an impression. <laughs> and then, then I moved from um, primary care into secondary care. And I have to say that was a, that was a, a really important move uh, and I think we'll come on to this later also represents the sort of direction of travel for the sort of interaction the reps are having with HCP so in primary care it was always very rushed um, you know back in those days it was trading pens and paper and things like that for access you know sticky pads and branded um, biros and stuff which we can't do these days and actually I think it's a good thing that we don't do that because actually we should be valued as communicators of science and, and information rather than you know, trading time for yeah stationary. So when I moved into secondary care, it was a it was a step up in terms of how knowledgeable I had to be, the caliber, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way to GPs, but you know, specialists in secondary care are exactly that, they're specialists. So their their depth of knowledge is greater, and therefore, as a rep, you're you know you need to know even more. So that was my first step on the journey to you know being a sci proper science communicator. Um, and it was also in the area of mental health, which has become a long time life lifelong passion for me now. Um, working in schizophrenia so that was with Lily to the launch of Zyprexa and then moved over to Zeneca to do the, the launch of Seroquel um, and you know that therapy area is, is I think everyone who works in the industry has one therapy area that's really close to their heart and for me it's it's mental health and the the, the people who have to live with those difficult conditions. Yeah of course I think it's something that much more people have become very much more aware of their own mental health and I think pharma companies as well are more reliant on their responsibility that they hold not only for people that have mental health conditions but then um, the burden on cancer patients for mental health is yes. so insane I saw a stat the other day that was like 70% of cancer patients undergo some form of depression and anxiety and no surprise there but yeah yeah um, yeah the, the whole well it's it's a really pleasing trend that we can be more open and honest about our own struggles with it. I've, I've been open and honest that uh, there was a period in, in uh, not too many years back where I suffered from depression for a, for a few months and went under treatment. And it's, it was really odd because, you know, I, I sold Prozac back in the day and all the rest of it. And yeah, I didn't even see that it was affecting me. Uh, you know, it's, it's mm. you know, it's seeing that the woods for the trees type of thing. Um, but by being as old as I am, 52, and having been in the industry for 28 years and running my own company allows me to a little bit more confident and open that you know by sharing you know that I got through that um you know where people won't judge me and I think back in the day it was much more buttoned up and tight-lipped and get on with it etc but I do feel now there's a much more open and honest conversation for people to have and by being open it also allows and opens the doors for others and so because I've been open about my um struggles back then it's allowed me to have you know open dialogue with guys that work here who also might struggle um, and it's just it's, it's so much nicer than it used to be back in the day. Definitely. Just to finish that story off, um, mm -hmm. uh, my boss at the time, who's fairly well known in the industry, uh, one Mr. Rob Wood, who at the time was the product manager for Seroquel at Seneca. He went on to be uh, the AstraZeneca marketing director and then um, set up STEM Healthcare um, before he, he he sold that a couple of years ago, but he set that up with Dave McNaughton. But anyway, his wife, Cherry, was setting up a PR agency and she had won uh, an atypical antipsychotic campaign for, uh, for Pfizer and she needed someone who 
new psychiatrists in, in London, which is my patch. So Rob recommended that I go and work for Cherry. So I did this unusual jump from field sales to agency. And it's not a very common path in our industry. Normally, if you're in field sales, you end up in head office. And normally agency people don't have that field experience. And I think that really, really tells, if I'm honest, uh, in the space I am now on, you know, at 28B, where we're focused on rep materials. I think it's really important to have people in the mix who have had that experience. Um, so anyway, went all, all around agency land for, for many years um, and then ended up deciding that, that small agencies could need a hand uh, when it came to digital. So I set 28B up as a digital services uh, sort of add-on for agencies. Um, came across our first Viva build eight years ago to build a sales aid for reps and my sort of experience in the field way back in the day combined with the potential I could see in this system, Viva, the CRM, CLM system. Um, I refocused the whole company, dropped websites and apps and all that kind of stuff and just purely focus on enabling reps with data, technology and content. And I have to say, it's kind of a weird full circle, but I've, I feel very happy in this space. Um, so that kind of brings me around, like you said, what, what, what advice would I give to people coming into the industry? I think if, if someone was going to, if, if my old GP job, you know, in primary care still existed, I would not advise someone to take it. It wasn't, it wasn't a great role, quite honestly. Um, it was a bit thankless. But nowadays, the role of the ref has changed, especially in rare diseases, secondary care, oncology, etc. You are a, or you should be a valued source of information, part of uh, the, the mix, and you should be highly valued. And that's actually the direction of travel I see with field teams now is maybe less numbers. I think you, you know you were at the the, the panel event um, with Paul Sims and myself, and and that you know you addressed that in your article. I, I do think that there will be fewer, but I think they'll be more highly skilled. I think they'll be more highly valued. And, uh, you know, they're going to be more enabled through data and technology. So I actually think it's a really exciting role to get into, um, but it would need to be with the right company. It's got the right ambition for the role. Um, but yeah, no, I don't think I'd, I, I'd, uh, I don't think I would go back to being a GP rep back in the day if I was asked, not that I'd be asked to. <laughs> you never know. Things could change. <laughs> it, would be a, it would be a massive rollback for me, if I'm honest. Uh, I'm quite happy where I am. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. Um, that's a very good link onto my next question, which um, obviously touched on there that I attended the event on the death of the farmer rep. It all stemmed from your LinkedIn post. So that was very yes. impressive that you managed to generate a huge conversation out of just that. Yeah, quarter, quarter of a million views, which uh, was insane. I was actually on holiday in uh, in Sicily. It was a very nice holiday. I'm looking forward to going back, actually. And it was supposed to be a switch off uh, holiday. But yeah, that post, which I think is partly because I you know, I, I just grabbed a picture of a headstone and roughly sort of wrote RIP on it. It's amazing what a picture can do. But I, but I was constantly just looking at LinkedIn, couldn't believe how fast it was traveling and how many, how much reach it was getting. And uh, my wife kept saying, are you working? It's like, no, no, I'm doing Wordle, I'm definitely doing Wordle. But I was <laughs> constantly, course. there was hundreds and hundreds of comments. It's really a really passionate area or, a, a, you know, an area that people can get passionate about. Um, and it's also mm. very highly invested area you know it's it's a big expenditure for our industry so it should have a lot of folks and attention for sure 
Yes, exactly. And speaking of that focus and attention, um, something that you sort of alluded to at that talk was that companies aren't necessarily incentivizing their reps in the right ways. Oh. And a quote that I pulled out was, what we incentivize, we will get. So I just wanted to, you know, get yeah. straight back to brass tacks with that. What do you think companies should be incentivizing for their reps to get the results that they really want? Okay, great question. And funnily enough, the community that we formed around that meeting, Digital Farmer Unlocked, the we, we just had our last meeting on compliance uh, on Tuesday, but the one I'm going to do in February is on exactly this, which is, and I think the working title at the moment is Vanity versus Value Metrics. So, uh, for, and also Wednesday night, I went out with uh, a, a chap called Mike Norman, who was actually my boss at Lilly when I was a GP rep in London, some 20 gosh, 25 years ago, 26 years ago, and hadn't seen him for, for that long. So we had had dinner and, and we were talking about this. We were talking about the, you know, when we were reps back in the day and, and this came up and I was saying that, you know, if you if you measure me on on how many doctors I see, like you need to see a certain, your call rate, then when, I'm, when my numbers are low, I'll go and see the easy to see doctors. But you know what it is about doctors that are easy to see, lots of reps see them, you know, how do you cut through? Yeah, it's a reach, frequency, share of voice. They're quite old school metrics of the sort of rep 2.0, which is the sandwich board rep. You know, we were given a sales aid, we were given five clear key messages, and we were told to deliver those five key brand messages to every doctor and every call, regardless of their need. So it's very much a sort of push, shouting type promotion. And in order to, you know, make that work, you were told you had to see, gosh, what would have been four or five doctors a day back then? Um, you know, call rates really, really low at the moment. Um, so that, that that's the old school metrics. And, and you know, I, I, there may be some therapy areas and products at certain stages in their life cycle, like at launch in a highly competitive, noisy space where that kind of maybe still works. Um, whereas value metrics and that same event that you and I keep referencing that Paul Sims read out a quote at the beginning from a UK managing director of a pharma company. And it was quite a long quote, but there's a bit in the middle of it that has been living in my head ever since. So that was back in October. And, and I think about, I genuinely think about this almost every day. And in that quote, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna paraphrase it. He said that it's, it's now a moral obligation for us as an industry not to waste the time of an HCP in a sales call because of the backlog of patients that COVID has generated. And I, and I think that is quite something to get behind. You know, making sure that field teams are scientifically literate enough, competent within their skill set, and have the tools and data and insights to hand to make sure that every engagement with every customer adds value. But then how do you measure it? So that's the next discussion for me is how do you know if you're adding value? You know, well, the, the simplest thing is you ask. You know, and that, that's been happening for years outside of our industry with NPS scores. And, you know, they can crop up in the oddest of places. How likely are you to recommend this insurance company to your friends? You know, it's not something I talk about to my friends, but NPS scores are proven and are important. So maybe we should just be asking our doctors at the end of a sales call, doctor, did I, did I add value today? Did you, did you find that useful? And then tracking that to make sure that we don't, yeah, waste, waste important time that, that our clinicians need. Yeah, exactly. Generating these actual meaningful discussions with HCPs is something that's so important recently. Like you say, in the good old days, <laughs> running around yep. to four or five different um, GPs every day to try and sell them something, handing them off a leaflet and then running out the door to get onto your next appointment. It's 
the landscape has changed so much and i think it's just continuing to as we move on with the introduction of sort of like avatar reps um uh-huh. i did a discussion at next the other day in which there was a sort of a demonstration of it's almost a deep fake of a rep and how they could just transfer their knowledge through that rather than handing off a leaflet if it's like seven page yeah. document that a doctor's just going to flip through what are your opinions on those things oh uh, like can we just get the basics right so i was <laughs> it's honestly just the well-trained so uh, another great thing I heard at the Viva Summit, um, Andrew Jackson, who's the um, general manager for Lumbeck UK, um, did a presentation about one of our um, selling effectiveness dashboards, customer insights dashboard that we created with them. Um, but he put a really important slide up, which is uh, mindset, skill set, tool set in that order. And as an industry, we tend to jump in with tool sets, right? Like a bloody AI avatar driven, I mean, well, honestly. Let's win the hearts and the minds of the field team with this amazing customer insights and data and things that we can generate through this closed loop marketing and, and CRM system that like Viva and OC and Exivo and all these other providers, you know, give that that that's not really being utilized properly at the moment. And that's the most basic thing. Um, it's, it's a real drive at the moment. You know, if we want to add value to every customer engagement, we need to understand that customer really, really well. We need to understand what they're needs are what what their, their treatment priorities are for that whatever the therapy areas we're, we're, we're selling into um what is the job to be done and you need data to really understand that and capture that and these crm clm systems do that if you do decent functional content and, and a good analogy and seems very basic but it, it's true is we give up data to google all the time because our experience through the google search engine um, or chrome or whatever google product you use is that much better you know, we, we're happy for Amazon to keep our shopping history and all the rest of it because our Amazon homepage uh, works for us. Uh, but we trade data all the time. So as an industry, I think we have this sort of embarrassment about collecting data around our customers with consent, obviously. But actually, if you do that, that means you can provide a better service. You know, and if we focus on a better service, better patient outcomes, the business will follow. Um, but if we you know, shy away from really understanding our customers through data, as well as, you know, human relationships, then it's that we're much less likely to be able to add that value um, in those interactions. Very much rolling things back and what are our customers actually wanting here yep. is definitely a good start. Super, ba- super basic stuff before we get involved in AI. I mean, we've deliberately steered away from AI and ML and all that kind of stuff. It's tempting, but really there's just really basic stuff to get done win the hearts and the minds of the people that use these great tools that we're building so that's the mindset get them fully competent and confident in using remote engagement retrograde emails understanding and interpreting data so that's your skill set and then the tool set you know back in my day it was literally paper sales aids and carbon copy paper i'd scribble in tiny letters the, the name of the doctor and their doctor's number and put it in the post and then Three and a half weeks later, I'd get a three and a half inch floppy disk and, you know, an Excel spreadsheet. We've moved so far from that to this this understanding. And yet, I have to say, most companies that we work with are not even close to just utilizing that basic combination of functional content, sales aid, rep triggered emails and data, and then presenting that data in a meaningful way to the reps so they can act on it. You know, let's just get that right before we start talking about AI generated avatar stuff. Really? Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Definitely. 
Ah, uh, so obviously we've talked about sales reps a lot, but something I did want to touch on was the role of the medical science liaison. Um, so their role has also been sort of evolving at a, a similar pace, not quite as fast as the rep, the sales rep, I would say, as the role seems quite a bit more rigid. Um, however, do you see a future in which sales reps and MSLs can work more closely together? Good question. Again, um, so I think the role of the MSL is not evolved as, as fast as the rep because it's newer, um, I think. And it was a considered role for the current environment, whereas the you know the reps have been around since the 1930s, 40s, 50s, back in the day when rep 1.0 was all about hotels and golf trips and being a doctor's chum. And then 2.0 is, you know, when I joined, which was more of sort of sandwich board style rep, his detail aid get on and deliver these. And then I think 3.0 is this much more scientifically and technically competent and literate value add or, or customer success manager sort of thing. So as to the MSL, you know, I, I'm not an expert in this field, but as far as I, I see that they're, they're the ones that are creating the environment in which appropriate prescribing can happen. So creating the, you know, the, the referral pathways, the clinical pathways, getting guidelines, etc. And, but at the end of the day, oh, I'm going to get into trouble for this. They're still selling, right? They're, they're still part of a commercial organization. And sometimes I do end up working with some med, field medics and MSLs, et cetera, who, you know, insist that's not the case. But if you go at the reporting, you know, eventually their boss will report to someone and who is in commercial. And at the end of the day, these are all, you know, owned by shareholders and we need to make money. And they're a really, really important part to make sure that the, environment is appropriate for, for for the product to be launched into and they're also really important in helping the 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 you know the the commercialization of a product and making sure that we've got the da- the right data or putting the right data in front of the right customers and they can do that obviously with their knowledge and ability to talk um off license or pre-license um so will, will it evolve i'd like i'd like it to evolve to be a more more of an understanding that actually this is you know there's a commercial aspect to all of this obviously within the restrictions when they're in front of customers but getting around the table um and thinking more holistically or cross-functionally about um about products that our industry is very um i can't think of the, the functions are quite separate you know um marketing and sales which is really odd in a lot of other industries, marketing and sales are kind of much more stitched, closely stitched together. Um, and it is changing, but we've, we've got marketing and then sales and then medical and then commercial. And, you know, and we're not brilliant at bringing all the parties together. And that's one of the one of the challenges for Omnichannel. Now, I'm not an Omnichannel expert but by any means, but I'm very familiar with the challenges of getting Omnichannel to work. And one of the biggest is, is cross-functional collaboration. You know, even before we start talking about integrating tech stacks, let's just integrate the function so that everyone's got a shared agenda of, of you know, putting patients first, patient benefits. If we focus on that, then the commercial success follows. But it, it is a commercial discussion at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. I think something that you said at the um, talk in October that stuck with me is that every single person who is customer facing is a representative yes. at the end of the day. And yeah, it's yep. something that I've taken with me while I've been thinking about this. Everyone's a salesman, you know, and, and, and I don't think we should, you know, that that comes with, for some people, that has negative connotations. But if you believe in what you represent, 
if you believe in what your organization does, then you should be selling it. You should be proud to um, put it front and center and talk about it and be proud of it and, and hope that people use it, whether that be, you know, a service that an agency provides or in pharmaceutical terms, a, a, a product, a molecule medication that will benefit patients. Mm, definitely. So moving on, we did touch on this briefly earlier on about the um, how the sales rep has changed over your time. Obviously, you missed out on the golden era of taking doctors out to golf courses, but you got in in the sandwich board era. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> during this time, what's been your view on how the sales rep has evolved over the course of your career? And what do you see for its future? I kind of want the best from rep 1.0 and rep. 2.0 so so 1.0 was really all about relationships and science took a sort of a secondary seat if you like it was you know who you knew and all the rest of it and by the way I should um, give a shout out to Chris Gish from the US because um, I nicked this from him I listened to a podcast from him um, and he talked about 1.0 2.0 and 3.0 um, so yeah 1.0 the relationships are really strong and, and and what comes with the relationship is a deep understanding of, of customers and then rep 2.0 being scientifically literate you know the ability to pull out a clinical study uh, and, and talk knowledgeably with a customer um, but the sort of reach frequency metrics combined with key message follow-up and stuff made gave us less freedom if you like so i want to kind of 3.0 i think we should have really good relationships good working relationships with clinicians that means we really understand what the job is to be done and that we can then deliver high value content high value engagements via all of the different channels that we now have available um and that to be honest is also a challenge for field teams you know we, we have moved very rapidly um, because of COVID into the digital space, some companies were well ahead of it, some were very far behind. And, you know, reps now have moved from, you know, their tools were uh, may maybe an iPad and in some cases still paper back in the day, you know, uh, a leather pilot's bag and uh, a car. And that, that was your tool set and you got out there and you did it. And now you've got everything from Teams and Zooms and Engage, remote channels, rep triggered emails, uh, dashboards and data. And again, that mindset, skill set, tool set covid uh, how did viva put it a crisis accelerated uptake of technology happened you know really rapidly but we completely overlooked i think i think we were guilty of blinded by the tool set and we completely forgot about the mindset and some of the skill set was addressed but not enough um an, an analogy i use is you wouldn't put a brand new rep who just passed their driving test the day before in, in as a rep in london and asked them to travel across london to an important meeting with one of the top professors in the field and then expect them to get there calm you know contained and have a good engagement with that they'll get there stressed and late or lost or all the rest of it and yet we've done the same thing by you know asking reps to jump in on remote software solutions and rep triggered emails etc just assuming really that you know a half hour training or someone demonstrating it means you're going to be confident and competent in that. So I still think we've got a lot to do around mindset and skill set. Um, and we've got plenty. We've just talked about this. We, we're almost got too much in the tool set stuff. And, you know, people get distracted by shiny um, AI and Synthesia and all these different tools when actually, you know, let's get back to basics and make sure that, that we've won the hearts and minds that they're competent and confident in using all of the, the, the tools and then then we can start bolting on new tool sets if we want but i think most companies have exactly what they need already but they're just not leveraging it 
Yeah, I think it's definitely a keeping up with the Joneses sort of thing where you see another company that's maybe a competitor has implemented a new software and you're like, oh gosh, we have to do this. Otherwise, we're going to fall behind. Yep. Really, it's just need to take a look back in on yourself and see what you're doing that could be improved. Yeah, a good, a good uh, uh, friend and colleague of mine, Colin Williams, who's the um, works at Astellity, was at GSK. He's sort of a, a senior bod there, but he's also the... The, the chairman of the PM Society, co-chair with the PM Society. And he has a phrase, which is brilliant basics. Let's just get the basics running brilliantly. And then, you know, and, and give give us time that once they're running really well to properly evaluate and to learn from those. And then we can take steps forward. But if you jump in with brand new tools and stuff, you're never giving ourselves enough time to just, you know, check in and evaluate and, and move on. Well. Been a very good discussion today thank you that brings me to the end of my questions it's been lovely chatting with you today thank you so much for joining me thank you uh, for the opportunity and for some some great questions i, I do like you might tell I, I like talking about this um I, I find it you know it affects many many people um and i'm i'm really proud of the value that our industry can um provide to hcps if we get it right um and that's why i continue to do what i do oh. What a lovely note to end on. Thank you. Thank you very much, Shane. Some great knowledge shared from James there. I especially liked his emphasis on getting the basics right and ensuring reps are really delivering value to HCPs. And as Jade mentioned, you can read her article, Is the Farmer Rep at Death's Door, on our website, and we'll leave a link in the show notes for you to check it out. We shall indeed. But unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks so much to James for joining us and thanks to you for listening. Next week, we will see the final episode of season three be aired and indeed of 2022 as well. So as ever, we will be bringing you a wrap up of the year with contributions from a whole host of past guests. It's not going to be one to be missed. It's not. I'm really looking forward to sharing this one. But until then, it's goodbye from us. See you next week. 